I'm Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? Who makes the schedule? Dude, these people, teachers and administrators who already had the hardest job in the world now have the really hardest job in the world. And I give them so much credit and so many props because uh, there's no winning. There's no pleasing everybody. Um, But, you know, of course, I think they realized that there was too many. I think the tipping point was now there's too many teachers out to. And I and somebody told me the subs make sixty dollars a day. And so if you're a sub, you're having to decide if sixty dollars is worth getting COVID over. <laughs> like sixty dollars. Yeah, it's insane. It's it's all so completely insane. Sixty dollars. You make more doing. You make more on unemployment. It, if you had a higher paying job, you would. I mean, you get unemployment from your higher paying job. I mean, it's just. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. Hey, let me run this by you. Look, it's bad. Chicago's real bad right now. They've got 6,000 cases a day. Um, positive cases in, in Illinois, I shouldn't say Chicago, Illinois, but still it's a lot. They can't, it's because those idiot Wisconsin, Indiana. Yes. 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 They ruin it for everybody. God, they just really ruin it for everybody. That's terrible. It's so terrible. And, 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 and so much of our, um, income inequality is really writ large through this, like people who, don't have Wi-Fi at home. And, you know, like somebody was telling me um, the statistic that since the school year started in the state of Connecticut, 5,000 like Chrome, almost every kid in our state has a Chromebook that's give, you know, given to them by the school. Um, 5,000 students had not, not yet logged on ever oh in the school year. And the person who was telling it to me, who was, of course, trying to be like lazy parents or whatever, I'm like, dude, they probably don't have Wi-Fi. Like, you know, Wi-Fi, it's like a luxury. Like, you have to pay for it. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, like, I'm assuming that's what it is. And there's a lot of rural areas here. So um, even if you could, for example, uh, go sit in the Starbucks parking lot, you, you know, you, you can't do that every every day. And and there's not necessarily a Starbucks in every. Well, yeah. And like, here. how are you getting to the Starbucks? And like, yeah. it's going to be freezing. So you're sitting in the Starbucks yeah. parking lot and then you're running gas in a car. I mean, it's just, it's, yeah. it's just, it's a very, very um, uh, shitty, terrible situation all the way around. And it lacks, it lacks clarity on so many levels. Oh my God. So many levels. It's just like, it's like the most, um, Right. It's such a logistical nightmare on every level, this pandemic. It's like, it's great. And I mean, it's a personal nightmare too, for a lot of people, but I mean, like even just the logistics of that. And um, I don't know if you have anything else you wanted to say about this issue, but it dovetails with my thing that I want to run by you. Okay, go for it. 
I think that is why everybody, well, everybody is always obsessed with cults, but people are really obsessed with cults right now. <laughs> In part, yeah, because everybody's home and they're binge watching programs, but also because one of the appealing things about a cult is somebody's in charge. Somebody's running it. Yep. You don't have to make all the decisions. Yep. Somebody makes the decisions for you. Yep. So here's what I want to run by you. Uh, do you remember in my, in my play? Wait, was it in my I, play? Yeah, it was in my play. I had a line, everything is a cult. Julia uh, says... Yes everything is a cult. And Gemma says, what? No, everything is not a cult. It was a kind of a throwaway line. And I, and I ended up cutting it out at some point because it seemed like just too much of a non sequitur. But I wrote it because I have for, for like a long time, a year or more, I've had the thought. If a cult is people who are drawn to a leader or a powerful force or whatever, and then it's an organizing principle for their life. What, what isn't a cult? Right. Right. I mean, right. Minus like all of the, so minus the, the weird sneakers and the, <sighs> we're going to be aliens and take, drink this Kool-Aid, but still, right. but it might as well. Right. I, I mean, the, the corollary could be like, in the cult that is suburban America, right. all the women wear uh, workout gear, whether or not they're working out. Right. You know? <laughs> totally true. Totally true. And so I started watching the Nexium. Oh, I haven't seen it. Tell me about it. It's really good. It's really good. I, I started, I listened, they made a podcast about it like a year ago and I, I was really into that. And the, uh, the documentary is excellent because the person who is not the person who's making it, but like the main person whose story they're following. India, right? Is her name India? Oh, no. The number two guy. There was only oh. one other guy. And he was a filmmaker. He is a filmmaker. How, wh what the fuck does it mean? Or what the bleep? What the bleep? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. He made that movie. Then he became involved in this partially because he was told we'll help you, you know, to, to do your career. Like this is, this is like, like Scientology. Oh, it's, it, it's 100% exactly Scientology. You have to move up the chain and you have to pay to do it. And every time you get close to it, it's, Oh no, now it's, you have to pay more, do more classes, work more for free, blah, blah, blah. A guy that I know he's married. He has two kids he um, has like a corporate job. He's very hardcore conservative. Okay. And he's gay. Okay. But so, he's married to a mm -hmm, woman. A woman. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah, I should have said that. He's married to a woman. And when I met him two years ago, it was literally like somebody introduced me and in my head I go, oh, you're gay. Nice to meet you. I, I was so excited because we don't have very many right. gay people in our area. So I was like, to me, I was like, oh, this maybe, maybe it's shaking up around here. And I, and I talked to him for 15 minutes. And then you can imagine my surprise when somebody introduced me to his wife. <laughs> like, oh, my God. What? Right, right. And they are, they, they announced like two weeks ago 
that they're moving to another state and they're doing it like next month. Okay, they're moving there because this guy's boyfriend lives in this other state. So he is moving his family, uprooting his family. And I think also the wife doesn't really want to go or she didn't or it was a surprise to her. She wasn't totally on board with it. But does she know about his boyfriend? Unclear. Oh, Manaja. She knows. Oh, Manaja. I think she knows he's gay and thought that um, getting married would help, help him with that. Getting married oh to a woman gosh. would make he would. So he's uprooting get... his whole family to go. To live oh. elsewhere, to be closer to his boyfriend. Oh my gosh. And how did they find out how? And, and, and I'm thinking to myself, this wife and these kids are in a cult. Yeah. They're in the cult of him. Yeah. He's making the rules. Mm-hmm. Things are weird and he's trying to make it seem like they're not weird. They're all, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I, no, I, know, it, I know there's a chasm between like an actual cult no, and that, but. But right. And I think that that, that is so, that is so interesting in that we always talk about, you know, if you look at it from a psychological, I feel like point of view, there's always a cult leader in a family. There's always someone who is the organizing principle of the whole situation. And he's that, and some are very, very charismatic and some, you know, are the troubled version, but he sounds like, yeah, they, they're obsessed with, he's, he's the, he's the godlike figure. And they're just, so it's like every family does have a cult leader. Who's the leader? My mom, my mom was definitely the cult leader. She was a cult. She was the angry. She, she led her, her thing was anger. So she, we were scared of her anger. So she was the, and I, so basically what you're saying is Julia is right. Everything is a cult. Like there is, is yeah, you know, in some way, I mean, which is only to say that it's actually not so unbelievable that somebody would get to a point that they would be branding somebody's initials in their skin because because you follow wherever the love and and appreciation is wherever it is if it's in the kkk that's your call or gang a gang is the same thing exactly and so everybody's just trying to find love and connection and everybody doesn't necessarily have the healthiest way right to to get to it wow even Aaron last night we were watching it together and he goes oh my god am I like a cult you know he's a therapist am I like a cult leader because these just people come and pay me to tell them what to do and I was which yeah I mean it is it is it's a healthy cult I guess you could say it's like it's a it's a yeah he's well he's also um I guess anyone could declare themselves a professional, but in the systems we have set up, Aaron has gone the route of educating himself in a very strenuous manner so that he has information to impart. But you could say the same thing that, that the cult leaders have information to impart. It's just that they, their training is suspect. It's like, what's your training where you don't go to cult leader school, you know, but like Jim Jones, you know, like the thing about Jim Jones and, and Jones, the Jonestown, massacre which i'm obsessed with by the way which i want to write about is that is that the guy was awesome at the beginning yes he was really inclusive he was really um anti-racist in a lot of ways he was real he happened to be 
a, a drug addict, narcissist, sociopath that turned psychotic, but that he started out kind of badass. Like Charles Manson. Right. Right. <laughs> like them all. So that's that's why people are like, how can you write about serial killers? I'm like, how can you not write about serial killers? They start out a lot of them as just like smart, cool people that then go that that have a DNA and an environmental thing that happens and they and their sociopath, you know, and their pathology kicks in. Absolutely. This guy uh, who ran the Nexium thing, he is brilliant. He is so smart. And I and I kept saying this is like the thinking man Scientology, you know, because Scientology was I think that guy was smart, too. But he was really uh, he really relied on people not being very smart right. to follow him, whereas the cult of this the Keith guy is is his intellect and and he and he purported to empower people to also like embody their full intellect oh. and like so it was a really I mean, that's tricky that's, that is the trickiest mind melding thing is with really smart people together right because they already feel like that they're superior to other people and then are highly um suggestible as a result of that, I think. Right. And also, and also if you are, um, right. If you are, if it's like such layers of cultiness, because if you are, uh, telling people, Oh, embrace your smarts, embrace your smarts. And they're saying, Oh, well, they can't be bad. They're telling me to just use my intellect that I already have. But the thing is they're telling you to use it in this way where eventually you're going to end up totally fucked, you know, but, and not realize it until, right. That's what you hear a lot of these stories of the people when they get away. It's they, they, they're doing something. They're scrubbing a toilet. They're walking around Albany in the snow and they're going, wait, how did I get here? Right. Right. Because I was following something that really was going in the direction of making it seem like I was going to get everything I wanted out of life. And it was, and I was almost going to get it. And then the, then it's like, well, now the real test is to, you know, there's, there's a friend. Yeah. The real test is to like really humble yourself and clean toilets and Albany exactly. bathroom. You know, exactly. a friend of mine said, I once, you know, a, a friend of mine, we were talking about denial, you know, and you, and we've talked a lot about on this show about group delusion and, and, but denial and I used to really, really strive for denial. That was one of my, and I could never get there. <laughs> Oh my I was God, like, that's so true. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I just really can't. I just be like these people that are in denial. And my friend finally said to me, listen, I know you think denial is like one thing, but I'll tell you what denial really is. Cause I was the queen of denial. And I'm like, what is it? And she's like, Den-, and it's exactly what you just said. She said, denial is you literally wake up on the couch 20 years later, suicidal wonder, how did I get here? And I was like, oh, I don't want that. Oh, I don't need that. Oh, no, 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 no. I thought denial was like, oh, everything's fine. I'll just go shopping. No, 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 no. She said denial is suicidal thoughts and at 20 years later and you don't know how you got there. And I'm like, okay, that she put it in such a way that I was like, nope, nope, nope. I don't need that. Nope, 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 no. nope, nope. And, and this is one of the many things I love about you. You have always been a person who is not in denial about anything. And sometimes it's unnerving. Sometimes you're such a truth teller that it's like, oh, whoa, 
you know, like uh, being to, to be your friend is to have to deal with the reality of whatever it is. It, it doesn't frighten me anymore, but I remember when I first met you, you know, that that's (laughs) really like take, because everybody in my life is full of denial. My whole family system was all about denial. I love the idea of denial. My family system too. But like, for some reason I wasn't, it's just like sociopaths. Like I wasn't, sometimes I do so much stuff about serial killers that I'm like, oh, that I just did this thing. And that was really sociopathic of me. And then I'm like, okay, stop. But the point (laughs) is the denial thing, the gene, I did not get the denial gene for better, for worse, whatever. Um, But I did I did think it was bliss until this, my friend pulled me aside and said, listen, you've got the wrong idea about what denial is. And I was like, holy guacamole. That is, I'm glad she did that because you think, oh, denial. So fun. It's so like, and what, what I see it as is escape or freedom is not what it is. Right. Well, or it it is like, the thing is, is everybody has and should use selectively denial right? in the same way that everybody has and accesses at points sociopathy. Right. It's just that it's not this panacea. You know, yours and my uh, sociopathy is not leading us to start a cult or kill people. It's like, it's the thing that makes you you know, want to close the elevator door before the next person gets in. I love doing that. It's just the self-protective thing. And it's, and it's just any part of you that is not whatever, it just completely empathic and giving or whatever and denial too. So yeah, some, uh, there are moments where you can go online shopping because you don't want to, you know, like face what's happening. That's a little bit of denial, but it's not a state of being. No, right. It doesn't, it doesn't really usually last. Like it'll last, it'll last throughout the shopping process. And then when the (laughs) process is done, I'm like, okay. So now I'm really into, I just, so you know, like I'm really into buying um, Christmas gifts and so everyone I know okay. is getting tons. You're going to get tons. Like, I'm like, that's the way out of this is buying Christmas gifts. It's, it's your not gonna- spirit wear. Remember? It's your spirit wear. Yes. I, 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 we all, and we all need it. We all need something to look forward to. My mom was, I was talking to my mom and she was like, she went shopping with her uh, sister and she said, there were these, we kept finding these cute clothes and then being like, but where would we, <laughs> where are these two? And then, and, and she looked the, uh, what's it called? Like the formal wear, the yeah. formal, formal wear section, and all these beautiful gowns. And my mom's like, but who's ever like, who's going to prom? Who's no. going to. And I said, and she said that she couldn't believe that they would have all of that out and that people would even be looking at it. And I said, Oh no, no. I know why people are looking at it because everybody wants something to hold on to that says this will end. We will do something else. We will have something to celebrate. Right. Right. Because otherwise you would just watch the minute we can be with people, people are going to just be wearing gowns like outside (laughs) to like to the supermarket and with their hair did full makeup going around. did you or when or how or did you ever start processing 
what happened at the theater. I don't school. think I did. I mean, I think I, I I really don't think I did until because if because it's one of those things, and I think you you said this about your own experience, where like when I was talking, I was like, it was as if I was far away in a different room hearing what he was saying. So that must mean that there's some trauma there. <laughs> if I'm because you just kept going, wow. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, I, 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 um, I also, I think that we went to school at a very specific time and obviously duh, but within a cultural uh, timeline. And so listen, that wasn't it. That stuff. I do. I know that he said that like it wasn't happening at other universities. I kind of that shocks me. I wondered about that too. I'm like, how? No, because because really, what it was was we were the last gasp of that way of theater because theater has always been rooted in that misogyny. And, that- and I I've heard stories about other people our age at other conservatories. Like there's this this woman who, um went to Carnegie Mellon and said they had weigh-ins. You had to weigh in at the, at her theaters. Yeah. So like, Oh my God. For, for the acting? Program? Yeah. And for, uh, yeah. And I don't know if that was an official weigh-in, but they all did it. And then they had, and then, you know, you hear oh nightmares about Juilliard and places like that. So like, I'm not, I'm not convinced. Look, I don't know if I'm just trying to minimize what happened to us, but I'm not 100% convinced it was DePaul-centric what happened to us. Right, right. But needless to say, apparently it was really bad. <laughs> apparently it was really bad. So, okay. So that's that's the same as me. And I, and I by the way, I mean, you know, I, I don't, I didn't come away from that thinking like, oh, I, um, I was really traumatized and I refused to acknowledge it. Or so. It's more just that, I mean, yeah, it, it was as traumatic as any other thing is when you're 18, 19, 20, and you want to be an actor. Um, but what the, what I'm registering about it is how completely distanced and then a distanced I, I was from what was happening to me while it was happening. And then that makes sense because then right after that, I moved to California and yeah, I was living with Jeff Brown but it wasn't like how it had been during theater school where you're always talking about theater school. Pro- my point is I didn't really process it. And then I left the field. So I, you know, I, I didn't keep talking about it. But I will say this. I, do you remember a guy named Mark Rannon? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, how he lived with Russell and. Yeah. You, didn't you date him? Or no. I, uh, ish. <laughs> ish. Okay. Okay. So uh, all of my relationships in college were exactly the same. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Um, but he would always be like, that place is weird, man. That place is weird. He never said like, they're not treating you well, but he, he always would say like, people who go to the theater school are weird. That place sounds weird. When you describe things that your teachers do, like I can't imagine a professor doing that. And, you know, and it's true that like, it's a, it's apples and oranges. He can't compare his poli sci major to, you know, a training conservatory. It's, it's not, it's not fair to make the comparison, but at the same time, I just do think that there were people who were saying at the time that it wasn't right. And I just completely ignored that. I think, I think that's true. I mean, I think it, it, are so years later my high school theater teacher was arrested for um 
indecent exposure. Uh, anyway, it was happening in high school. So like, and, yeah. and, and the reason, I mean, he would expose himself and was hitting on boys and, and no one said anything for, th- for 40 years. And so I just, there is this culture, mm-hmm. right, around performance that is like, body and, mm-hmm. and so bodiness then gets translated and the line gets crossed into criminal and and nobody seems to know what to do about it and nobody did anything about it i certainly didn't do anything about it i was not an advocate for those i i i i i, I didn't even i literally didn't know what was happening so like i yeah so yeah. that's where i am i didn't know i didn't know what was happening in side of me and I definitely didn't know that anything that was I knew look I think that I knew that the theater school was really competitive and really petty and really fickle they were fickle teachers about who they liked and who they didn't but I never thought oh we're all being abused here yeah right no definitely not so, but what was your whole approach to like, why did you go to DePaul? So, I always, I told this story like to someone else recently who was like, why did you, how did you end up? Oh, it was my mentor. Like, how did you end up at DePaul? It's a, cause I poo-pooed it. I was like, ah, I went to theater, go, theater school. And she was like, we were developing our personal pitches. And she was like, well, tell me where you went to college. And I was like, ah, I went to, you know, the theater school, DePaul, whatever. I didn't, I didn't think I'd get in. I got it. She goes, that's a really big deal. She said, and I was like, what? So I went, I was one of these kids that like didn't do a ton of theater in high school until later, like my senior year, maybe I did some, I did, I had no direction. So sort of was like, well, and I applied to like 10 schools, NYU, it was all over the map, like University of Minnesota, like huge schools, Santa Cruz, like, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I wanted to take a gap year. And my mom said, absolutely not. She said, you will go to college. So I was like, oh. So I applied to all these colleges. I was a B plus student. And then there was that girl, that woman, or young in my who was my friend who was a, sort of a friend I guess and she looking back but she I thought she was my friend and 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 she was going she was the actress right and I thought okay well I want to be like her literally I think my thought process was like I want to embody what I perceive that she embodies and she's doing these generals you know like those unifieds or whatever they are where you go to a hotel and apply for all these schools so i'll just go and jeff brown did the same thing and so we all went to the palmer house and did this general oh all the conservatories at the same time had auditions oh that's that's cool that's convenient i mean so convenient so you got so I think I how many schools? I think I applied. You could do like the most you could do was like ten. Oh, and I did like, and, and but there were different auditions at the same place, so you still had to audition ten times. But it was like oh, they were all in the same hotel. So I did like NYU, DePaul. I did at DePaul because I lived there and whatever. Um, but anyway, I did a bunch. Of, I can't even remember what I did. I think I did like Cal Arts was there at the time. Um, some other schools. Anyway, I, I didn't. I spent very little time on my auditions, like my monologue prepping, as where other kids had coaches and did all kinds of things. And my parents were not involved. Like the 
point is that I, I spent very little time prepping for college. Like, I, I, I didn't do shit. But all the places are worth. Every place you applied to, though, was a conservatory or just had like an acting. Some program. didn't even have acting programs. So, like some colleges, like University of Minnesota, I just was going to the general school. Madison General School. Um, I, it wasn't even like I liked acting that much. I I literally have this, and it's the same thing when we talked about the theater school. This dissociative sort of I don't know what happened. I just kind of I uh, applied and I I got into. I didn't get in. I got into a bunch of places, but I didn't get into NYU. I got in and like that bummed me out. And then I got into DePaul and I was like, well, I guess I'll just go to DePaul. It was so. Yeah. So, so similar. I mean, even though I didn't apply to all those places, it sounds like it's like a similar thing of path, path of least resistance or, but not even, it wasn't even that conscious, just go wherever. But that's interesting what you're saying about wanting to emulate your friend, because I think that's how we became friends. I have an image and I've learned that sometimes your memories are, you recreate them in the wrong <laughs> order or whatever. But my memory is that I was standing in the uh, lobby looking down the movement hallway okay. where they had all the lockers where uh, movement to music was. And you had just gotten out of mu- movement to music. And I, I really don't know what it was. I, I <laughs> You were just like a magnet. And I just, I was just really? drawn to you. And I don't, and I don't know if it was that day or that moment, but I like pressured you into being my I hear you, and I I think you've said that before. I have no, again, I don't have a memory of that, but what I do remember is that I really thought, I really thought you were tops because Don Ilko loved you, and he he did, yeah, and he did not love me, which is fine. At the time, it was not fine. Now I'm like, you know, this is mm-hmm. this is part of the theater school. But he loved you, and he loved your work. He was your, he was your acting. No, teacher? we had him. We were in class together with him for like something. For he wasn't. It wasn't first year, but when I, it was like. I can hear a private moment. Yes. That whole yes. Were we in the same private yes. moment section? Okay. But he was our acting Okay, teacher. so that I guess that acting. was an acting class. I don't even remember. But so did we stay? We stayed with us. It was called a section, right? We stayed with our section for the first year for for just one yeah. year, and then a different section. I think so, or we we veered off. All I know is it was you and me and Danielle. Remember Danielle? Um, and yeah, and um, Stephanie White. And that's all I remember from that section. But Don Ilko really liked you. I remember you did your, um, you did a pinter scene. We had to do pinter in there. Mm-hmm. And he really, you were really one of his favorites. And um, I thought that was really cool. I loved him. Remember when he said, beware the psychic vultures? I, I use that all the time. Uh, and it was around the whole uh, the whole culture of during shows asking each other, how's your show going? Oh. And if you would say, not good. People would be like, really? What? And then, and then it would kind of spread like that show isn't oh. going well. And then that's sort of what, or, or similarly, this show is going amazing. Uh, Cause for example, you were in um, the adding oh, machine, right? right? 
I love that play. Oh my god, I love that play. That was my favorite. That and um, Judith that Jimmy McDermott directed were my favorite shows that I did while I was there. Yeah, I loved Adding Machine. Judith, did I get to see that, or was was that your your? No, they were all like workshop productions in classrooms. But yeah, I don't know. Oh, when was I? Don't even know. I don't remember. Oh, it was my final year. Yeah. It was my final year that I did Judith with Jimmy. Yeah. You didn't see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't see it. So um, I remember the buzz about Adding Machine being amazing. And it was. But, I mean, it was also really, really good. Um, anyway, I, I re- remember that whole thing about Beware the Psychic Vultures. It's so true for life. But it's really true for this industry about that's based on like in a way it's really a marathon about how good your confidence yeah. is I, oh my god beans i ha- i have been like my journey this whole um last i would say year is really not a journey of talent for people and and not just for me but looking it's a journey of confidence this is a journey of confidence and now it doesn't they're not mutually exclusive like but this is a journey of, this is a marathon of confidence. And so was the theater school because it just is a journey. Like when we were talking, I was like, oh, this guy has so much confidence. Now look, now look, I don't. And then that we get into, you know, um, the idea of resilience, right? Resilience and confidence and all that, but it's confident. Mm -hmm. It's like Mm -hmm. unbelievable Mm -hmm. how much confidence has to do with making it in this life. It's also unbelievable how at the same time the notion of confidence is very simple and straightforward and everybody's born with it and everybody has experience of whether or not it gets you know beaten out of them or built up or 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 built into them under false pretenses like the way that some people do you're the best you know some parents do to their kids you're the best you're the worst you're the best you're the worst uh it's and so so yeah so so if you want to do a career like this or maybe, maybe any career you have to like check okay and that's the thing you have to check in with yourself about how you're doing emotionally and i think what we're both saying is that neither one of us had any idea how to do that like the entire time <laughs> no and i think the, 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 the teachers should have helped us like that should have been a yeah. thing yeah, nobody was minding the store is essentially like the takeaway here. And that everybody was, uh, including the teachers, just in it for themselves and, you know, trying to figure out what they could get out of it. But when I tell you, I imbued every authority figure with so much un- undeserved <laughs> respect and like, you know, kowtowing to, I mean, I... I was really susceptible to have a teacher who would tell me I was crap and then tell me I was the best. Well, never the best, but like to tell me I was crap and then to say, now you're doing the first time. Wait, did I already tell you the story about the very first time I met with him? Okay. The very first time I met with him, we were still in our first uh, first uh, trimester, whatever it was. And he was like, listen, um, you can't keep dressing like that for class because I would get dressed up for class. I all through high school, by the way, I dressed like I was going to my corporate job. That's amazing. I dressed like my mother. I dressed in beautiful 
button-down yes, shirt. Yes, I remember. I loved it. I thought it was. I, I thought it was really cool. But said like you're not prepared to get dirty. You're not prepared to. But it, it was true. I it was good feedback. Like it, I needed to hear that, and I did make the change, and it did make a, a bunch of a world of difference. But what what wasn't cool about that conversation is that he started asking me about my family history and you know and I was feeling so like raw or whatever you know I'm like yeah my parents are alcoholics and you know go through like the whole thing and then what he did was he developed this um thing of like we see each other because I know about alcoholism wasn't he like didn't he say he was a recovering alcoholic come on right instead he just used drugs I think that was the deal yeah yeah so he had, he taught, he did like AA speak with me and, and that worked. But now I realize he just did a version of that with everybody based on what their thing was, you know, like based on what they were, what their vulnerability was. Right. And you could ostensibly make an argument that being in touch with your vulnerability is something that you need to do to be a good actor. But at the same time, if you're the adult in the situation and you're teaching this to the child in the situation, you have to do so extremely carefully and and thoughtfully and with oversight of, of, of the teacher, you know, and that's, I think the thing that we, that's clear now is that there was no oversight. I remember this is crazy. Like he, my one, when I met with him and got a warning, the first, whenever the first warnings came out, we had to meet and he was my teacher and we met. He literally said, what sign are you? I swear to God. And I said, I'm a Libra. And then he started talking about the problems that Libras had. I mean, it was crazy. But at the time, I didn't think it was crazy. Now looking back, I'm like, what sign? What do- he literally was talking about astrology during a, what? It- what? So, and then he had no real answers for why why I had a warning. It was just like said. I mean, it was like so arbitrary in terms of the warning system. But like he was, and he was probably stoned, or I don't know what he was. But he, oh, I'm sure it was. it was just. So wait, so you got a warning? I got a warning too. I think that was the conversation that I had with yeah. him. Was, was I was I got a warning? And we got cut. You I got wait, cut. but you could have gotten cut after each term. Is that how it works? No, no. I, after the first year. After the first so you got year, okay, so and then you were cut if if you didn't make changes after the first year, and you could get cut after the second year. So that's when you after got the cut. first year. So after the first year, I all I remember is like people got cut. You know, I got cut, and and um, we got cut, and I was really sort of I was devastated, but I also was just checked out. I thought, Oh, I'll go to whatever. I I don't really remember that time. And then got his parents involved. And I said, this is his parents. God bless them said, this is not legal. Like they, they, they threatened legal action. Um, But for cutting him? Yes. For cutting me, him, and Stephanie White. I don't know why the three of us got lumped in. He like used our well, cases. Two because you you said it the other yeah. day. Two people of color and a Jewish yeah, person. Right. Yeah. So there you go. There you go. So he and I said, well, well, so his parents threatened legal action. And then we got a letter. And I don't even remember. I wish I kept that letter so bad. A letter saying we weren't cut. 
And so then we went back. So that we were cut and not cut. How, how long did you think you were cut? It was like a month. It was a long, it was like a, a month. And, and I didn't know. What were you doing in that month? What was you, were you thinking about going to another school or what? I think I was thinking about going to another school. I was going to go to Columbia maybe, or um, I God, I don't know, but I, I knew I was, I was upset and my parents were upset, but, but we were like going to figure it out. And we knew, we knew there was a danger of being cut. That's one of the things. So it wasn't a surprise. Do you remember, I know it was like a long time ago and for a short period of time, but do you remember if when you got cut for that month, did, did were you like still going to be an actor? I don't think so. I really don't think so. I think it was like, you know what, F this. I'll do something else. Yeah. I really think I was done. So you, yeah. So, so the bottom line is I, I, I don't really remember, but I remember being really panicked. And then I remember with the letter, you know, the cut letter. And then I remember calling and saying, my parents are getting involved and then getting a letter saying you're back. And then it was so crazy. So you never got, obviously you were never cut. No, I was never cut, but I feel like I was warned all the time. And, and also um, the other thing about it was, I mean, I'm more convinced now than ever after talking that if it's between me and a, another person with at my same level, who's like getting a scholarship, they're going to cut the person who's getting the scholarship. I wasn't getting a scholarship. I had, I mean, but um, what did happen is, in a way, kind of work. I mean, I'll just preface this by saying, I think a lot of the people who got cut went on to like, it turned out to be such a blessing for them. I mean, you, you've already described to me several people who've gone on to great success. Anyway, so my point is, what what in some ways was worse or as damaging as getting cut was getting these shit parts every single time. Every single time I just yellow boat was like a fun experience, but I was like in the chorus essentially. So, so it all culminated for me when I kicked in the door. Right. The door, I was away. I was away, but I heard about, you told me about it and Russell told me about it. I kicked in the door. Did anyone ever, did you ever get busted? Nope. (laughs) And they're not even in that building anymore. So I can't have the statute of limitations has expired. No, but it was the fun. Remember how we used to go wait for the cast list? That's the worst, the worst. What was that bar, that Irish bar, like a, a block away? Kelly's, was it called Kelly's maybe? Kelly's. We um, would go to Kelly's and wait for the cast list to come up. And then we go. So my very final term of my final year, I got another workshop and I kicked in the door. I was so, so angry. And also uh, the show that I did, I guess my very last show was, do you know who he is? He picked this Dario faux play called Orgasmo Adulto Escapes from the Zoo. It's essentially a one-woman show. Uh, it has more than one person in it, but I, I'm on stage the whole time, and I have, like, an hour's worth of monologue, essentially. The dude did not give me one single note the entire time. Oh my God. His only direction was, yeah, just do what feels right. I recently Googled him because I'm like, I was so angry with this guy. 
I recently Googled him and learned that he did that same play at a Chicago theater at the same time or right before mine. So he, I know now I know what the deal was. He's like, I already did what I want to do with this play within a professional setting. I, you know, this is not, I, he was just collecting his pay or, you know, collecting his paycheck or getting, and I guess not his paycheck. I guess he was getting his uh, credits, you know, for, oh for the God. directing program. And he's still a director. He still does that in Chicago, I think still. Anyway, the point is they, my experience at Paul kept me close enough to what I wanted to do to not drop out, but not so close so as to have any success. And with, in my, in my view, Mm -hmm. zero preparation for life. Uh, and, And, you know, and there should have been some type of a way of saying, if you get to your senior year and you still want to do theater and you're not trying to do film and TV, you take these classes. You know what I'm saying? Because I knew, I knew that whole year, I knew I was not for film and TV. I wanted to do theater. That was my thing. Yeah, and, absolutely. And I, I was alone. I was truly alone. I mean, people like Russell didn't, they'd rather do theater, but they wanted to make a living. So, and he knew that he like, was kind of good looking. So he could, he could maybe make his way, but I was alone in that everybody else wanted to do. And then so, so then, so then it all came down to whether or not Jane Alderman liked you. She liked you. She liked you. And that was, and if she didn't like you, which she knew within the first 10 seconds of the very first class, you were, it was just like a killing time for you while she focused on the people who she really wanted to focus on. The one thing I didn't ask that I wanted to was if he knew anything about that whole thing where after showcase and I sneaked into the office and saw our, you know, a bunch of people who didn't get any phone calls from agents, saw all of our names with, you know, agents who were interested. I wanted to ask him about that. I'll ask him about it privately at another time. But um, anyway, the like, when it's all said and done, I am really glad that I went to the theater school. I feel I did get a, a an excellent, if specific and maybe not that useful um, education. I, I wanted to do that. I wanted to have that yeah. experience and, and I yeah. had it. And, and I, and I had an undergraduate degree, which allowed me to later go to grad school. And, you know, like I don't regret anything about it, but it sure could have been a lot better. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I agree. I, I feel like if people ask me, would you have done things differently? I think that's such a hard question to answer because it's like, probably not. I didn't know better. I mean, what if I know now, even if what, what I know now it was, I made some amazing friends, you know what I mean? Like I learned a lot about Right. I learned a lot about human life and human interaction and had a, and had fun. And How had did fun. you end up uh, taking the year off and going to Shakespeare and Company? So that's Christina Dare. This is crazy, which is why it was interesting. With that. So I was in her Shakespeare class, right? And she said, you know, there's this program, a summer program called Shakespeare and Company, like an intensive summer thing. I think you should apply. And I think you should ask for, you know, and I said, well, it's expensive. And she said, do a scholarship. So I got a scholarship to go study. 
And when I was, and it was just as dysfunctional as the theater school. It was so dysfunctional. People, everyone had been married. It started in the seventies. Everyone had been married to everybody else. There were no boundaries, but they were doing really, really cool work. So I went there, had a great experience and Mm -hmm. said, I want to stay here. And I was really felt loved. And even though it was kind of cockamamie, you know, but I felt really appreciated there. And they said, yeah, we have this fall program where we want, we, we want you to direct hand. We want you to direct high school students. And I was like literally three years older than the high school students, but okay. And they said, we'll pair you with a more experienced director. Stay here. So I was like, I'm here. I'm going to take, not thinking this, 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 fall program ends. And then what the hell am I going to do? What the hell am I going to do? It's not a whole year. It was just like a fall festival of Shakespeare. So it took a whole year off and you couldn't just take a semester off. Right. So you had to take a whole year or trimester or whatever. So I took the whole year off, stayed at Shakespeare and company, fell in love with a dingling Canadian. I think I just worked at rock bottom I don't even know what I did with that year after the fall. I came. So my plan was, okay, well, they were saying that I was going to, after the fall festival, they were doing Romeo and Juliet. And they were saying I was going to get cast as Juliet. They kept saying that you're going to be Juliet. You're going to be Juliet. And then they, they cast this 35 year old woman who had never, because she, she, they had been promising her the role for like 30 until they cast her. And I was like, Oh, now I can't stay here. So then I went back to, so it was the same as the theater school. Look, it was the exact same shenanigans. I had fun in the DePaul adjacent situation, but like, I never felt I fit in at the theater school either. Maybe no one did, even if they did fit in. Well, I think it's not dissimilar from the whole experience of like popularity in high school. I think it's the thing where if you're not popular, you, you know it and you feel it, but you might still have fun if, especially if you can accept that and just do your own thing, which, which I feel is what I did. But the people who are inside of it will tell you. Yeah. What will they say? That 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 it was horrible too, because uh, they felt pressure from, the staff, I mean, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I would imagine that people like Judy felt a lot of pressure because everybody just kept saying like, you're amazing. You're amazing. You're going to do great. You're going to do great. You're gonna do great. And she, she, she did like, she, she did great. But at the same time, I, I just can't imagine being 20 and everybody having such high hopes for you. Like, I think that we all thought, including her, that she was going to be like Julia Roberts. Right. I had none of us had any idea that she was going to always be the quirky best friend. Right. Because I, we all thought she's gorgeous. She's talented. I'm imagining it took her a while to like ease into that whole thing. But at the same, at the same time, like that's another really weird thing about acting as a profession. It's both extremely adult, no matter what age you are and extremely childish, (laughs) At the same time, it's like, it's this weird brand of, I always think about child stars. They're being asked to have like adult type jobs. Um, But if they become too adult, then their acting really suffers. So they have, it's this, it's almost like an impossible. I agree. I agree. And, And actors in general are supposed to live in. You're supposed to be 
so emotionally raw and available that at a moment's notice you can access X, Y, Z feeling, but you have to turn that completely off when the cameras turn off or the whatever, because then people will say you're difficult to work with if you're too. It's really, you can't win. No, you can't win. That's why you and should I be a writer. A hundred percent. And also, by the way, don't you think back at your whole life and go like, yeah, I was always a fucking writer. How come nobody saw that? How come nobody ever said, except for, you know, the occasional teacher here and there, it's just that people don't think about girls or they didn't when we were girls. It was not quite as bad as the 1950s, like where you have to take home ec and you're told explicitly, but it's very close. It's, it's, it's just that they took away the overtness of it, but it was still there implicitly the whole time. Okay. So you, when you did your showcase and everything, what happened for you? Did you get to have, I mean, no, I don't, I don't know. I, I didn't, I had, I had no zero. I had Many, many people were interested in Chicago for me. Um, so, like, after the Chicago showcase, which was before the L.A. showcase, I had tons of Asians come up to me. I had – and that was great. And then I went to L.A., and I think after the showcase, agents came up to me and gave me their card and stuff, but I wasn't planning to move to L.A. So they were like, well – if they said, if you want to move to LA, but I had no meetings. I was not one of those people. Nope. I had no meetings. I had no um, management. So then I came home and then I stayed, that was 1998. And then I didn't move till 2000. So I had started working in LA in Chicago and I was booking, you know, I booked right away ER and early edition. And then, um, and I was the lead in that Steppenwolf show. And then I was like, well, Laura Fishman was like, I'm moving. I was like, I'll go with you because I'm having such success here. And I got it. I was hanging out. That's when I was really started sort of the self-help journey. And I was hanging out at Transitions Book Place and in Chicago and on North and Clybourne. And um, I said, is there a store like this in L.A.? They said yes. And I, I got a job at the Bodhi Tree before I moved to L.A. And then, so I moved to LA and started working the next day at the Bodhi. I, and I didn't act again. I went to LA and did not act. Could you, could, and you did, cause you didn't get an agent? Well, I did have a, like a, I just really got into the culture of the Bodhi tree, which was so fun. And the guys were so cute. And like, I just became upset. Like I just got into that culture and, um, I, I, I'm doing a podcast miles. Um, God. um, for God's sake, I got really into that culture and, um, and, um, I got into that culture and I, I didn't need to, like, it didn't, it didn't, I was really, I was actually that I probably was relieved in a, in a, in a sense because I didn't feel competitive. These people embraced me. I made like the greatest friends and then I, started working and then I met Norm and then I started working for Nick. But for that year that the first year that I lived in LA that time was awesome because there was no pressure to be anything except an, a Bodhi tree employee. Mm-hmm. And that that paid you enough to pay your rent and everything? Barely, but it did. Our yeah. rent was $500 in West yeah. Hollywood in the year 2000. I was making barely. And I think my parents probably helped me a little bit, but like, yeah. 
I lived it up. I loved that year. I loved that year. Did you meet Norm yeah. because he came so into Norm the Bodhi Tree? Came into the Bodhi Tree to buy a book, and we started talking. And he's like, "How much do you make here?" And I was like, "Literally seven twenty-five an hour." And he was like, "Oh, he was like, would you want to run, be the office manager for a production company?" And I was like, "Sure." <laughs> and I thought that was cool. It was as easy as that. Like the first time you met him. Well, he we really hit it off, and then he said, "Come in for an interview," and he didn't tell me it was Nicholas Cage or anything. Mm-hmm. And then I went into. Um, and then I went into, I met with him and Clark, this woman who turned out to be an online gambling addict. And that's so crazy. And I, I'm, I, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that just shows us we should in those jobs. Like what? Yeah. Anyway, she was literally playing po- online poker all day. And then, um, and then I met with them and they hired me. And, and then um, I had to meet with Nick and I met with Nick on set. He was somewhere and that was it. And that I'm telling you right now. That first year in LA was glorious. And then things went downhill when I got involved, not downhill for the first couple of years at Nick's office. It was great. And then things went downhill when I saw how crazy, how, like how mm-hmm. gross Hollywood was mm-hmm. for women and for humans. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then my dad got sick and all that. But anyway, the, 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 the point is I had no, no interest in me at the showcase. at all. None, none, none in LA. Zero. Still, I mean, they told me there was interest, but no one ever had there. So they were like Nickelodeon's interested in you, da da da. But they never set up meetings, so I, I just went home. Oh, you you probably ended up on that same list. I'm sure. Did Jane like you? Jane like we. I would say medium. Mm-hmm. Medium. Okay. Nothing. She started liking me when I started booking work in Chicago. Right, right. Then she was like, you're doing great. Because right. I had like double book. Two agents wanted me to do. She was like, this is great. You're a... But before that, no, zero. I wouldn't say zero. I'd say so more. did you, at, at, while you were working at, for Nicholas, did you think this is going to turn into, I'm going to meet people this way? And because I, that's what I didn't understand. Every time, every, you know, you everything you hear is, Today's assistant is tomorrow's blah, blah, blah. I oh, maybe it's for being executive. Yes. It's as if you wanted to be, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't, I didn't want to act necessarily. And I didn't, I wasn't writing. And I, if I had known now what I know then, I would have been like, I'm a writer. Produce my stuff, Norm. And he probably would have pushed it. But I was so floundering as a human and just didn't know what I wanted to do that I had no path. So it wasn't even like, Oh, I want Norm's job someday. I was like, no, I just like walking the dog and making mm-hmm. a lot of money. Well, More than I was the making. fact that you're saying that your parents invested everything and kind of left you to fend for your makes sense that you would um, gravitate, excuse me, towards a position in which nobody had much expectation of you. And, and, you know, that's another missing thing. Wouldn't it have been nice if, and maybe you did hear this along the way, but wouldn't it have been nice if somebody had said, it's okay to have the expectation of yourself. It doesn't have that to would have been, It would have been great. It doesn't have it to be relation me. to a person who's proving of you. It can just be that you, because I think another thing that happens is, you know, so like, I think we've sort of established that if you're interested in anything, any aspect of this, and you're a woman and you're born in 1975, people are going to say, well, you're going to be an actress. That's what you're going to do. Whereas they may say to a guy, oh, well, you could act, you could direct, you could write, you could do this. Um, So 
when when nobody reflects that to you, you couldn't possibly figure it out on you know, it, like what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say it's it's a it's not it's not just that you see it's not just that you have the knowledge that female writers exist and you know that you can write. It's it needs more like synthesis than that. It needs more like I think I told you the I had a teacher in seventh grade who was one of these TFA. So she was one of these like help the kids who need help kind of a teacher just there for a, yeah. a, a term. And she told me, you're a really good writer. And I'd never heard that before. And I got really jazzed about it. And she was there for three months and then she left and it was right. over. It was completely over right. because then I went to high school and I think also in high school, I was so um, consumed. I loved doing, being in the drama stuff. I think I was so consumed with that. And every teacher I had knew that about me. They were like, well, whatever. She's going to be an actor. Like, let's don't, let's don't promote any other, any other career path. And my parents right. didn't go to college and they don't have any idea about anything anyway. So there was right. just a, like, if it had been one person who the whole way had inspired me. So do you, when you look back at your life as a kid, do you think like, I was always making up stories or. Yes. And yes, I was, I was, um, I was, I was very creative in that way, but also I just loved people. I loved watching people. I loved, you know, I was, I, I you know, hypervigilant for, for, you know, for, for reasons that aren't fun, but, but, but I had one person and that was my grandmother, my, my Swedish grand, the, my dad's mom, who was the only encouraging person I would have to say pretty encouraged, only encouraging mm-hmm. person in any way about anything. And hers was more like, you can do it, whatever you want. She was more of a general encourager, but she, if I hadn't had, and that's why she's tattooed here. And if I hadn't had trouble, so, mm-hmm. and there was even trouble with her. So, but like I, she was the one constant in my life and thank God she lived a long time, but everyone, no one else was encouraging. I got to be honest. And it's not even that they were, it's that, it's that, right. I didn't encourage myself. They didn't encourage me. It was just sort of a general, um, you don't exist kind of a situation. Well, how did your, I know you said you didn't do that much stuff in high school, but you did some drama. There was, you know, thank God there was a thing that Jeff Brown and I did that was like a comedy review thing. And, and he was like, you know, audition. And I was like, Oh my God. So that was like outside of like straight acting. It was like review. It was like a, Mm -hmm. you know, variety show that there was a team of writers and I didn't write for it, but I acted for it. So I got into it that way. And then they were like, Oh, we need someone to audition for this role. Would you like, and it was like, okay. And Heather was always the star and I was always the sidekick or the, or the um, funny person or whatever. And so I was like, okay, I guess this is better than being in my house where they're a little crazy. So I'll do that. But I wasn't. There was so it wasn't never, until you went to theater school that your parents knew that this is really something that you were into. Correct. Okay. And did they, were they excited about no. it? Or? No, no. My dad was, my mom was like, what is, my mom, I think was like, get a real situation. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense that she'd be, she was very practical in any case. 
Um, so your dad was excited about it, but he was too impaired to he was impaired and he was so self-absorbed and he was such, my dad really was proud of me when I did my first solo show because partially it was about him. I mean, I mean, parents are so, it's just so, such a, so, so he, it was just like, but, but that's when my dad, my mom still was like, what is this? But my dad was proud then. Um, I think my mom was the happiest until before she died, you know, she told me to quit my job and all that, but she was the happiest when I was a therapist Mm -hmm. because I had a real job, even though it was hell on earth at the nut hut, but she, I think that's when she was the most proud. She told, but when she told you to quit your job, it was to pursue what you were interested in, right? It was the biggest shock I ever heard of my life. It was the, it was the biggest shock ever. And she was, we have to like also put it in the context that the woman had like lesions on her brain. So like, I, while I think that it was also an emotional coming to coming to Jesus moment, I think it was also, she was like losing her mind. So like, it's hard to tell what the hell she wanted, but she did say, you know, you need to be happy. If doing art makes you happy, do your art. She did say that. And Mm -hmm. I did buy that. I mean, that, that really came through. So, and I think she was really lucid in that moment, but it wasn't as though. Yeah, I know. I get it. I get it. She was dying. So, but uh, what about anybody else in your family? Any distant relatives who are artists of any stripe? Nope. Me neither, dude. I, I don't understand that. Okay, but here's here's my hypothesis about it now. My mom is actually a really good writer. And one year for Christmas, she gave me a book that she wrote of her, it was like personal essays. It was like a memoir of sorts. And I read it and I'm like, this is really good. You should like really be a writer. And she's like, I did. I wrote this book and I'm like, no, I mean like you should try to get this published or you, and she, she looked at me like I was saying you should go live on Mars. And so I think, Oh, if, if I was a victim of, you know, sexism, I mean, please, there was, they literally told her you'll either be a secretary or you'll get married to somebody and you won't have to work. That is it, and she became a she. She became a secretary and got married right. to somebody, and had, and did. But um, but she she always had that, and still has that ability, and she loves to read. So of course she's like a writer type. So we probably don't know if there's anybody in our lineage yeah. who is similarly interested, because if they were a woman, they were probably that not so encouraged true. to do it at all. Oh man, so sad. Hey there, it's Gina hopping on again at the end of this just to acknowledge that this episode ended on a sad note, but that's only because we literally had to stop recording at that exact moment. And this is anything but a sad podcast. In fact, um, we have been having the time of our lives talking to people about their experiences of the theater school. And of course, we're not only going to be talking to people that we actually went ourselves to theater school with, and we're not only going to be talking to actors, we've talked to directors and playwrights and administrators, and not only from our program, but from other drama schools. And this podcast is part of a larger endeavor, and we would love for you to check out what else we're doing at undeniablewriters.com. And If you like this episode, please subscribe and give us a positive rating. And thank you so much for listening. I Survive Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. 
Jen Bosworth-Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. Follow us on Instagram at Undeniable Writers or on Twitter at Undeniable W-R-I-T-1. That's Undeniable Write without the E-1. Thanks. Thanks.